Turn your attention now to your bulletin or the screen behind me, and you will find the sermon text for today, located in the Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 22, verses 7 through 20. Hear the word of the Lord. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. This ends the reading of God's word. Thanks, Ivan. Good morning. Uh, my name is Jonathan Winfrey. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Redeemer uh, City Congregation. Um, <clears throat> we're in the middle, as uh, Terry has mentioned, of a, a series on the Gospel of Luke. We're coming to the end, and in the last few weeks leading up to uh, Easter, we're looking at various events in that last week of Jesus' life. And so we're slowly making our way through these things uh, today as you saw or have have seen, we're we're looking at the Last Supper, uh, a supper to remember. Um, And and that's a play on a few things, uh, but I hope it becomes clear as we move through, uh, not just what I mean by that, but how that becomes a framework for understanding, being nourished by, uh, being being fueled, really, uh, by the supper for the mission that God has given to us. Uh, the, the last Passover meal of Jesus' life was with his friends, uh, which just kind of struck me uh, this week that uh, he decided the last Passover meal was with his friends. It wasn't with his, with his family, uh, but it was with his friends. Uh, and it's no coincidence that he decides to go to Jerusalem on this particular week uh, of the year uh, and that the Passover would fall at this time as he moves into what are really the darkest hours in the history of the world, uh, beginning, beginning with, uh, with this meal and the sun setting on this particular day. We have been emphasizing, uh, if you go back to Luke 9, verse 51, where the gospel really turns as Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem, we have been emphasizing he's moving toward Jerusalem, he's taking up a cross, will you follow him, will you go with him, everything he's doing. He's doing in light of that destination. So if you're going to follow him, it means take part in his mission. 
Follow him means going where he goes. And where if it's a cross, then uh, that's where we're going to. So we're going to look at more detail this week, this um, Sunday in Luke 22, with this last Passover, or as we call it, the Last Supper. Okay, first, uh, what's the background? And this is in your uh, worship folder on the insert, uh, the outline, so I'm just going to walk through the outline briefly. Uh, what's the background? Why is that important? Okay. Uh, secondly, how does Jesus turn that original story on its head by applying the Passover to himself? How does he, how, how does he radically alter it? Uh, it's really amazing. And then third, how does remembering this do in remembrance of me, how does remembering bring power for following him? How does it bring power for becoming like him? Uh, those are the, the three points, the three things that I want to take a look at as we walk through, okay? So first, the Passover, the Passover told. Um, if you're new to the Bible, new to Christianity, uh, it's important to understand what the Passover was what was this Feast of Unleavened Bread? Why was it so important in the life of uh, Israel? And uh, knowing that background helps to make sense of what Jesus does with it. But just on its own, uh, look back at the call to worship from Exodus 12. I just chose a portion of Exodus 12. If you get a chance and read the whole chapter, uh, I would encourage you to do that. This is the event known as the Passover, and it refers to the final plague in a series that God had inflicted on uh, Egypt in response to the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. And so, uh, as you may be familiar with, the story of the book of Exodus is uh, God raising up Moses, saying, you go tell Pharaoh, let my people go, and he does it repeatedly, and every time the plague kind of comes and gets a little bit worse, a little bit worse, a little more intense, right? This is the last plague, the worst one, the most, uh, the most awful, the most horrific. And it's not an overstatement to say I don't think that this event, more than any other event in the history of Israel, informed the identity of Israel. This event. It's the event that prompted the Exodus. It's what, it's what it kind of finally turned Pharaoh. Go. You're free. Please get out of here. Right? It was what marked Israel as free people. It was what distinguished them as God's people, those who had been set free from slavery and given new life to be experienced in the promised land. So without it, Israel would have remained as slaves in Egypt. It was the very means of God's redemption. The Passover was the very means of God's redemption. It's why it's so significant. Not just for Israel, uh, but for us. Knowing the backstory makes the conclusion of where we come today all the more powerful, all the more profound. But, but why this way? And there's a principle here. Uh, and again, I'm, I, hope to con I hope I'm connecting some dots. And even if you are familiar with the Bible, uh, to be reminded of these things, um, I mean, no coincidence, we're talking about remembering. To be reminded of the Passover and what was going on here is, is critical. Um, a lamb had to be sacrificed in order for God's judgment to not fall on the Israelites. That's the principle here. That's the idea. So the angel of death was the instrument of God's justice on the unbelief and hard-heartedness of Pharaoh and Pharaoh as the representative of the Egyptians. And so he says, the angel of death's going to move through tonight. And if you don't have the blood of the lamb smeared over, this is from our call to worship, smeared over your doorpost, the angel will enter in and he will destroy. If he passes over and he sees the blood, 
when he sees the blood, he will move to the next house. So, the blood of the lamb was literally a covering, right? Underneath it, you were safe. The angel passed over. And when he saw the blood, he stayed his sword. Now, if you're here and you don't believe yourself to be a Christian, or if you're new to Christianity... Again, a lot of, a lot of dots that I, I hope to connect from the back story, the Old Testament, through to uh, Jesus and the New. But, but to give some, a little bit more backstory, because of sin's entrance in the garden back in Genesis 3, because of sin's entrance into the world, humanity would live at a distance from God, our Creator. Isaiah says, our sins have separated us from God. The first man and the first woman's rebellion was and is our rebellion. And as, as Drew talked about last week, our hearts in their natural state are utterly hostile to God. They're not just mildly irritated with God. We hate him. We hate his rule. We hate his commands, right? So in order for humanity to approach God, because of this distance, sin, the separator, has to be dealt with in some way. So animals being sacrificed all over the Old Testament, if you read the Old Testament, you see this again and again and again. That helps explain this idea, right, this principle. Animals were the substitutes. In fact, in Genesis 3, right after Adam and Eve uh, sin, and God says, here are the consequences, before he kicks them out of the garden, he makes coats of skin for them. Well, where do the coats of skin come from? Well, an animal that had to be sacrificed. And most Bible scholars believe that that's a little tiny foretaste, a little, a little pre- preview of what would come, not just in the first Passover, but in the final one uh, that we'll talk about in just a minute. Animals were the substitutes. They were the sin bearers. They appeased God's wrath so that people didn't have to experience it. That's the general idea. In fact, in some places in the Old Testament, the priests were uh, told, put your hands on the goat or the animal and confess your sins and the sins of the people as you're touching the goat and send the goat off into the wilderness, literally bearing the sin of the people, right? So it's a powerful idea. And Pharaoh's hardness of heart and commitment to his own way above all else is a great illustration of, of sin. I was reminded of this uh, even last night, driving home from the men's retreat. Um, I have serious XM in my uh, car, and um, if, you, if you didn't know this, they have a Billy Joel channel. And all they play is Billy Joel, and it's great if you like Billy Joel, uh, which I do. Um, and Don Henley of the Eagles was the DJ. I mean, it was amazing. So I I had a great time riding home. Um, But uh, one of the songs that they played is a famous Billy Joel song, and it's My Life. That's the name of the song. And and those of you who know Billy Joel, you know the words. He says things like, I don't care what you say anymore. This is my life. Go ahead with your own life. Leave me alone. I'm going to live how I want. I'm going to be my own boss, captain my own ship, all that stuff, right? And it reminded me of Pharaoh. It reminded me of the hardness of the human heart. Because what you're seeing in the, the, the judgment for sin that the first Passover illustrates is what God responds to when it's wholesale hardness of heart, a wholesale rejection of his word and ways. And it's a stark reminder. The Passover is a stark reminder of how seriously God takes sin. There's a foretaste here, even, I would say, of 
of the final judgment of sin. When Jesus returns to consummate and complete his kingdom, the terms will not be peaceful. His second advent will be very, very different from his first advent. And the terms will not be peaceful. And in the same way that you see in the Passover, unless the blood of the Lamb is smeared over you, then you'll be destroyed and thrown into everlasting torment. The book of Revelation uh, at the end of the Bible talks a lot about that. And so it's sobering. I don't say that to try to scare anybody into the kingdom or something like that, but to remind us, to, to warn us, really, to examine our own hearts uh, as to the state of them. And are they more like Pharaoh's or are they softer uh, and, and, and more uh, willing to submit to the word of God, to the commands of God, to the ways of God? Not only that, but the Passover gives us a preview of the work of Jesus. And we've been reading in Hebrews in our community Bible reading. Uh, and if you've been following along, last week we read uh, Hebrews 10. And the writer says this. He says, what we see in the Old Testament is, quote, a, a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. And, and that shadow can never, by the same sacrifices continually offered, make perfect those who draw near. Right? Why? Because, he says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Which is why the Bible doesn't end of course, at the, the Passover, because the blood of a lamb was not good enough. It wasn't permanent. It didn't solve the problem, right? And so these two problems arise. How can sin be taken away permanently? How can we be made perfect? And that brings us to the passage in Luke 22. That brings us to the final Passover, right? Jesus' radical retelling of, of this story. And so, uh, look there, I'm going to refer to it a couple of times, but Jesus tells his disciples to prepare the Passover meal, the, the meal that was centered around the very story that recounted the salvation, the redemption, the rescue of God's people from Egypt. They celebrated this once a year, but it was centered around the story. And so these disciples would have celebrated this Passover meal in their families, in uh, growing up, and even into adulthood. Once a year, they would have done it again and again and again, and even Jesus himself. And so they would have, they would have done it exactly the same way. There was a presider, usually the father or the patriarch of the family, and in this case, Jesus. And the presider would take the bread and say, this is the bread of affliction which our fathers ate in the wilderness. Only, uh, look at verse 19 uh, in Luke 22. What does Jesus do? He took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them. Now, if you're a Jew reading this, you're, you're expecting him. And, and then he said, this is the bread of affliction our fathers ate in the wilderness. But what does he do? He says, this bread is my body. It's the bread of my affliction. As, as if to say, this bread... Unlike the bread which Israel ate to remember their deliverance from slavery, this bread will deliver you from the bondage of sin and death in a way that that bread never did or could. And it will do so permanently. Through his body being broken, Jesus is leading a new exodus. He's sacrificing himself, just like the Passover lamb. But he goes on, right? There, it didn't stop at the bread. There was always wine served as part of the Passover meal. And typically, 
there were four different cups of wine, which were tied to four different promises that God made in the story of the Exodus. But Jesus takes how many cups? One cup. And he says, this cup is my blood poured out for you. I'm giving myself. I am fulfilling all the Passover meals and the blood sacrifices offered ever through my blood. I'm going to cover my people just like the Passover lamb. When, when John the Baptist saw Jesus in John 1, verse 29, what did he say? Do you remember? Remember what he said? Here comes Jesus walking down the road. And what does John say? Look, look, everybody. There's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Now, if you're a Jewish person, if you're one of these disciples, and you are listening to that, and here comes this human man walking toward you, your mind is being blown. The Lamb of God, right there, that guy, that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Yes, that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How is that? Because unlike the blood of bulls and goats, the blood of that Lamb takes away sin permanently. So because Jesus ate the bread of affliction, he now offers us the bread of life. Because he drank the cup of the Father's wrath, he now offers us the cup of salvation and redemption. If you were raised in a, in a liturgical background uh, or, or church growing up, I was raised Anglican, and so uh, it, when you take communion in the Anglican church, you, you take from a common cup a chalice, uh, and, and the, uh, the person giving it to you says, this is the blood of Christ, the cup of salvation. And it, this, is, this, is, this is another person's blood, which is the, the means, the very means by which you and I are saved. It's not a, the blood of a, of, of a bull or a goat or a lamb. It's the lamb of God, uh, Jesus Christ himself. At the first Passover, God said, when I see the blood, I won't send the angel of death to that home. When I see the blood, when, when the angel of death is passing over, if he sees the lamb's blood, he'll move on. And, and so in a very real way for us as Christians, living with the blood of Christ over you means his fulfillment of all that the Passover pointed to is at the center of your life's reality. And so when the Bible talks about being in Christ, part of what it means to have his, his blood over you is to be, to be washed in it, to be cleansed by it. We sing songs about that. His blood is the very means of your exodus from slavery to sin into freedom and flourishing. That's part of this meal. The Passover retold is the gospel. Jesus offering himself as our substitute, to be broken and beaten, to be poured out to death so that we, who only deserve death, might have life and his spirit poured into us. Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's poured out for you. So his blood gets poured out, and you and I get the spirit of Jesus poured into us. It's amazing. And so, behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, I, I want to end here with uh, uh, the power behind our remembering. And it's where I want to spend the most time. Uh, because it's, it's, it's where it can get practical. It's where it can get, I, I hope, helpful to us. Uh, how, what's the danger in our forgetting? 
what does it mean to become a person who enters the story and how the story can shape us, okay? So that, that's where I want to sit for a few minutes as we, as we finish. Uh, what happens uh, when you forget something that's life-giving or something that's needed uh, to make your life work correctly? Examples would be, you know, what happens when you forget to brush your teeth chronically? I'm talking about chronic things. Uh, your teeth will fall out. Uh, what happens if you, you, you never exercise, you never eat a proper diet? Your body will, will, will break down. It will uh, fall apart, right? It won't work properly. If, if, that's, if, if that's what malnutrition looks like in terms of physical life, what about when you forget the things that are spiritually nourishing? What about when you forget chronically the things that remind you, that bring back into your memory well, the work of Christ on your behalf. Um, as we do this meal, as we eat this meal together, we are remembering him. We are reliving our salvation in the same way Israel relived theirs. But here's the thing. They, they did it once a year. Once a year they celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I mean, how often do you and I need to be reminded of our salvation story? I mean, every day, right? Seasons like this are great because we... We get to be reminded through the word and the sacrament in front of us each week. But it just goes to show you how, how, how quick we are to forget. And the further apart we do it, the more prone we are to forget. It's the difference between the words of the story and the illustrations that make the words come alive, right? When you're reading a, a book to your children, uh, or when you did, if they're, if they're grown, you know, you're, you're sort of reading it, holding it open, and you're reading the words, and then what do you do for the illustrations? You typically turn the book around so they can see the, see the picture that, that's, that, that comes, makes the words come alive of what you just read. And so, here it is. Here's the picture. Here's the illustration. This is Jesus turning the book around and saying, see, this is what I mean. This is what I'm doing for you. And it's what some have called a living memory. The, the supper is a living memory for the Christian. We all have them, but is there, think about this. Is there something in your life connected to your memory so powerfully that every time you see it, every time you hear it, it all that it represents, all of the memories come flooding back in and they fill your mind and heart with joy and peace and nostalgia. Something good. I know there are many things that are bad. But something good, you see it, you hear it, maybe it's a song, maybe it's a, a place, maybe it's a person, uh, maybe it's words, maybe it's a phrase, a poem, lots of different examples. But that's what this meal is intended to be for us. It's intended to be a living memory, something that when we see it, when we taste it, when we experience it, it powerfully brings all of the work of Jesus back into our mind and heart. It floods us but it does so much more than that. It's, it's the means by which we enter into the story. Listen to a couple of words from John 6. Okay, Jesus says this, uh, Truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. It's not just a mental recall of events. 
when we celebrate the supper, it's not just in your brain thinking. It, it is that. It certainly is that. It begins there, but it, it's a spiritual experience of tasting and seeing salvation. And, and the best kind of analogy to this is when someone tries to describe to you what honey tastes like, how sweet honey is, they can only get so far, right? Is there anybody in the room who's never tasted honey in their entire life? You'd be ashamed to raise your hand if you hadn't, right? Because you're like, of course, everybody's tasted honey, right? But, you know, what if there's a person who hasn't? And, and they say, what's honey tastes like? And you're sitting there trying to describe how sweet it is and, and its texture. and it's, You can only get so far with the words. But what happens when they taste the honey? What happens when you taste the honey or you experience something for the first time? You experience its sweetness in a new way, you experience it. It's not just described to you, but there's actually an experience of its sweetness. And when we understand the words of Christ, when we eat and drink the bread and cup by remembering, by thinking about his death, through faith, the Holy Spirit in a more profound way, in a more powerful way, arguably, than anywhere else, even in reading the Bible, even in praying, the Holy Spirit takes the cross and shapes our hearts with it and brings it into our experience. Because this meal... It, you can taste it, you can see it, you can touch it, you can feel it. It is the words being turned around so you can see the illustration right there in front of you. This meal, more than any other spiritual discipline or practice, allows you to experience the joy and the wonder and the glory of the cross. It's the best way to experience mystically and supernaturally, by faith, the transforming reality of the cross and the resurrection. Now, we have a, a catechism uh, in our um, tradition. It's called the Westminster Larger Catechism. And uh, one of the questions, question 170, uh, asks how, how, do, uh, how do people who come, how do Christians who come to take the supper, how do they experience the body and the blood of Christ? And one of the ways that it describes that experience is that they, by faith, here's the quote, by faith they receive and apply Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death. So they receive and apply Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death. What on earth does that mean? Well, I think one of the primary things it means is eating and drinking the supper. When we do that, we enter into the story and we become part of the story. We begin to apply the story to our lives. Uh, John uh, 6, verse 63, Jesus says, These words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And so failure to participate in the supper will result in malnourishment. It will result even, even in danger as the living memory begins to fade away. Just like you're malnourished, if you don't eat properly, slowly over time, your body will break down, things won't work properly, and so forth. Slowly over time, if you're not spiritually nourished, then you'll be malnourished, right? Are you, are you so identified with Jesus that people know, even when they meet you, that you've been with him, that you've fed on him, that his story is shaping and forming your life? Uh, my friend Tim says that it uh, uh, used to be, he went to a restaurant called Vito's, and he said whenever he walked through the door, his wife always knew he had gone to Vito's. Now, how is that? Well, because when he began to move toward her to give her a kiss, you know, like, hey, honey, how was your day? She backed up 
I guess it's from the garlic, I don't know. But the, the, the point is, Vito's was on his breath. I mean, in that moment, she's so identifying him with Vito's because of what's coming out of his mouth. What, what's even at that, probably with all the garlic coming out of his pores even, right? But it, is Jesus on your breath? Has he shaped and formed your life in such a way that someone knows when they, when they experience you, when they meet you, when they talk to you? That happens by being identified with experiencing this supper. Well, lastly, two, two applications, and, and these have been very helpful to me uh, in thinking about this this week, and I hope they're helpful to you as well. Uh, and they're not long, they're this. In the supper, number one, we're nourished by him. And number two, we're joined to him, okay? You have to first be nourished by him. In the supper, we're nourished by him. Christ offers himself to you. He says, take and eat, take and drink. In fact, unless you do, you have no life in you, he says. That's the experience. This is the experience of tasting the honey, the, the, the living memory coming alive inside of you. But it doesn't stop there. Being nourished by him leads to being joined to him. This is Christ in you. You become a part of him. He says, unless you eat the true food and the true drink, you abide in me and I in you. When you eat the true food and true drink. Excuse me. This is the story of Jesus becoming your story. This is your life taking the shape of his life. And so, regularly re-entering the story, through eating and drinking this meal means imitating him. It means a life full of crosses. It means many experiences of being blessed, just like the bread, being blessed, being broken, being given away. A life of being poured out so that someone else can get poured in. And, and just as he was broken so that we could be made whole, now, if you're joined to him, having been nourished by him, you become a person who offers yourself to be broken so that others can be made whole. It's just, it's just imitation. Uh, when, his, when his story becomes my story, practically, very practically, I lose the need to be nourished by the approval of others. I lose the need of being controlled by their will, but I also lose the need to be nourished by controlling others, by, by my will being done, my kingdom coming on earth as it is in the heaven of my head, or something like that. I'm, I'm so secure in his will, I'm so confident in his love for me, that my needs are met. And so, as we come this morning, this meal provides a source of life that never runs dry. It never runs dry. It also, though, unites us to Jesus. We, we're, we're joined to him so that we can then work alongside of him in the mission he calls us to. In the same way our homes are connected to the, to the power grid, right? And the power grid is a source that feeds our homes with electricity and energy. So in the same way that our homes are connected to the power grid, this is the power bar for your soul or the power grid for your soul. It connects you to the source so that as his people, we can participate in his mission. Giving our bodies, giving our wills, giving our agendas, giving ourselves being poured out, being sacrificed. In other words, taking up our cross, following him. Remember, what have we been saying? He's on his way to Jerusalem. Are you going with him? Right? 
the promise of the gospel is, and the promise of this meal and its nourishment of us is, that's, that's a good life. That's a good life. And a church full of those lives will change a city. It'll change a county. It'll change the world. Uh, and so would you pray with me that Jesus would come and feed us, nourish us even now uh, so that we might take part being joined to him, uh, take part with him in his, in his mission. Lord Jesus, we marvel uh, that you would be so malnourished as to die so that we might receive the nourishment uh, of this bread, your body, broken for us. Uh, and we, we just ask that the marveling, the, the amazement, the gratitude, the faith to believe, fragile as it is so often, would in, in leading us to believe in greater measure, in, 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 in propelling us toward this table to receive nourishment from you so that we might be joined to you, we pray that that would result in us fearlessly going with you wherever it is you call us, whatever cross that you're asking us to bear, whatever place of need or suffering or challenge awaits. And may this meal be the nourishment that we need. By the power of your spirit, please come and do that work. And we pray, Lord Jesus, in your name, amen. Um, If your faith is in Christ, this benediction is the promise as you go. Uh, you, you're nourished by the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You're empowered by the line of the tribe of Judah. Uh, and so you, 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 there's humility and yet there's fearlessness as we go to join him in his mission. So whatever cross he's taking you to, you can go boldly, you can go fearlessly because he goes with you. So <clears throat> receive these words as you do go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.